Right, good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, please open to Revelation. It's a couple books after Genesis. <laughs> I'm going to go with a lot of humor. It's actually the very last book of the Bible. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll read the first eight verses of Re- Revelation. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the book of Revelation, and we... Um, Lord, we ask that you would bless our time as we work through this, this book. There's a lot in here that's hard to understand. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us uh, by your spirit to focus on the main things and um, help us to see you in your glory. Um, for as we see you in your glory, it changes us. It changes how we live our lives. It, it affects us. It, it affects our relationships. It affects how we treat one another. It, treat, it affects how we treat the world around us. Uh, for you are a huge and mighty and awesome God that is hard to comprehend. And so, Father, so often we, for our own comfort, like to put you in a box and, and make you um, more user-friendly at times than you are. And so we recognize you as the creator. Uh, we are the created And we ask that you would soften our hearts, Lord, and help us uh, to understand this book that is before us. We ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel, to his bond servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And Father, we do praise you for you. We thank you, God, that you communicated yourself to us, that you could be known. And Lord, we ask that we would humbly uh, walk before you as we study this book. Help us now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray, amen. All right, so there's going to be, we have to lay a whole lot of foundation in this book before we ease into it. Um, today really is the introduction to the introduction. Um, I, will, I will start with, I have a lot of notes today. This is not my favorite book in the Bible, just as a disclaimer. <laughs> uh, there, there's, um, there are plenty of books in the Bible that are extremely clear and 
instructional that, that I think take a lot of priority. Um, because of the colorful pictures in Revelation, the, the illustrations, many cults, many false teachers, all sorts of things have come out of this book. Um, and so I've been trying to work on how to gracefully say this. If you're an individual who is, who is uh, attracted to Revelation, that you really are prone to like uh, search the internet and do all sorts of stuff, you're really at risk for, for, for a lot of false teaching. And, 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 and I say this with humility, um, that I would caution you with your sources. Be very weary about those that you're reading from this book. Um, I sort of feel like teachers that teach on this book are a lot like guys that I hear about all the time that are SEALs. All the time I hear about, hey, I know the SEAL. It's like my first inclination is the guy's a fraud. And 90% of the time, the, the individual's a fraud. And so when I hear somebody say, oh, I've been reading up on Revelation. I saw something on Google. It's like, I'll smile and I'll say something diplomatic about thinking it probably is a total fraud. Stay clear. Um, and the reason I feel this way is, is I take God's word really seriously. And this is a prophetical book. And so it, it's dangerous to come dogmatically at it. And so there will be probably more humility from me concerning this book than you all are, are those of you that are really excited about this book, are going to be happy with. Um, I'm not going to dismiss this book as John Calvin. He wrote uh, a commentary on every single New Testament book of the Bible. He didn't write it on Revelation. Martin Luther dismissed this book, saying it wasn't Scripture. And the main reason is that Revelation 20, they couldn't accept the millennial reign of Christ, that Christ would literally return and that he would literally reign and rule for, 20, uh, for, for a millennium. And, and so I, I, I can't go that, I can't side with them on that issue. Um, this week, Dave, my dear friend, he's like, well, I've been listening to Revelation, man. You're in trouble, dude. And I was like, <laughs> he's like, there's scorpions and ladies and all kinds. And I'm like, I know, I know. And I'm not, com- I am not committing to how I'm delivering the book totally. Um, uh, Charles Swindoll on this book, he described a story of, of one afternoon going uh, to pick up burgers back when he was in Los Angeles. And he was going to pick up a load of burgers for his family. He's at the burger joint. He's waiting for the burgers to be delivered. And he looks over, and there were two people having a, a fascinating conversation. But he couldn't understand a word of what they were saying because they weren't using words. They were using sign language. And he's, like, just gawking over them. And he's, like, they're laughing, not making a sound, and they're having this great old time. And, and he's, like, well, the problem wasn't me, or the problem was me because they were having an intellectual conversation. They knew exactly what the symbols and things meant, but he didn't. And I think a lot of times with Revelation, there's symbols and stuff that they mean what they say. We just don't necessarily know what they mean. Um, There are things in this book that seem so out there that we almost, in our humanity, dismiss them because it seems unbelievable. In 1870, there was a man who was a pastor and he traveled around to various Christian universities, and he uh, stayed at this one house. And he stayed at the house and was talking to the professor uh, before he was going to go lecture. And he said, I truly believe that the Bible has said that all that can be invented has been invented. 
1870. <laughs> like, where do we start with the things that have been invented since 1870? And the professor said, well, I, you know, I respectfully disagree with you. I, I, I actually think that within 50 years, humanity will learn how to fly. And this pastor said that you really should be careful with that because you're, that, that's, that's bordering on heresy or blasphemy. Like, it would be in the same realm as he was talking that we would talk today about sort of, a, um, oh, I lost the word, uh, uh, cloning humans. You know, you know, like that's reserved for God. He says that, that flight God has created for birds, not for man, and we, we shouldn't go there. Would you guess that this pastor's name, his last name was Wright. He was the father of the Wright brothers. <laughs> and less than 50 years, in 1903, from, so 33 years later, his two sons were the first to fly. And so I don't blame this guy, but there, there are things that we can't comprehend, but that doesn't mean that they can't happen. Um, and so I don't want to dismiss Revelation uh, or parts of it, because there's a lot of this, this book that are very user-friendly and very powerful. Um, so my plan is to, to sort of address it and then the narrow initially, then to broaden out the picture, look at the big picture, and then to zoom in and, and look at the narrow picture sort of at the end. So, so that hopefully we as a church can, can see the big picture of Revelation and what's happening with total humility. Like what I mean is our hands are open and saying, this is what I think. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who think differently than me. They're probably, like, there will be pe- people in this room who think differently than me, and that's okay. Um, when we look at Revelation, James Hamilton Jr., uh, he wrote this concerning the importance of Revelation. He says, we have been lulled to sleep by the ordinariness of our lives. Our senses have been dulled by the humdrum of one day after another. We need to see God as he is. We need to be convinced that Jesus is reigning as the risen king. We need to have him speak to the situation in our churches. We need to know that God is right now on his throne in control in heaven, worshipped by myriads upon myriads of the heavenly host. We need to see that God will pulverize wickedness, obliterate those who oppose him, and set up his kingdom. The book of Revelation has exactly what we need. To say it another way, God has given us the book of Revelation so that we can know him in his glorious justice and mercy and live worshipfully by faith. I thought that was really good. And so as we approach this, I think it would be ingenuous, genuous, ingenuous, ingenuous. That sounds funny to me right now. Am I saying it right or wrong? Disingenuous. Disingenuous, That's what I was looking for. Of me, not to lay the foundation of where I'm coming from. Okay, Uh, my aim is not to go over and to teach revelation from every single position that's out there. Um, I, I have a position that I interpret scripture from. And so I need to sort of lay the framework of, of my biblical view of how I see this book. I will share that there are four main, maybe three, depending on how you count it, um, that there are four ways historically that Revelation has been understood. 
The first is the historical or continuous historical um, way. It, this, this method is pretty much, it pretty much died in the early 20th century. Um, it started in the 17th century, so from like the 1600s to, to 19 whenever, it sort of faded. And this holds that the book of Revelation covered the entire scope of, of human history from the resurrection of Christ to his second coming. As history unfolds, interpreters assign various events of history to visions and symbols in Revelation. But as time progresses, they, are, they keep reinterpreting and reapplying. Uh, the historical position uh, viewed died the death of a thousand interpretations. Historians uh, or historism was the interpretive method used by many Protestant denominations from the 17th century to the early 20th centuries. When liberalism took hold of some of them, they moved over to the idealistic position, which we will get to. Now, I just want to say, as sort of a, a pause, yesterday, good buddy of mine from La Mesa, senior pastor, went to seminary with him. We, parted, we went to Bible college and we parted ways for different seminaries. He went to another school of thought. I went to a different school of thought. So we were sort of on opposite ends of the spectrum. So I saw his church started advertising, hey, we're starting Revelation. So I texted him. I'm like, hey, Nathan, I see you're doing Revelation, sucker. And I'm like, yeah, I'm doing the same thing. And I'm like, I'm going to start it too. And he's like, hey, if you figure it out, let me know. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm going to handle it from a decaf dispensationalist position. That's not an actual thing. That's what I would call it. And he's like, well, I'm handling it from the historical millennial position. And so I was like, okay. I'm like, I totally disagree with you, but... But I love him, and he loves Jesus. And so he holds to this first position, in part. So then the idealist position is, is what morphed out of that. The idealist view was all millennial, meaning that they don't believe that Jesus literally in chapter 20 comes back to earth to reign and to rule, um, meaning that they believe that there is no literal thousand years in which Christ rules on earth. Idealist, understand the millennium as referring to a very long time, and that the visions and symbols of Revelation only infer to the timeless struggle between forces of good and evil, which will go on indefinitely till the end of time. Since the visions of Revelation aren't to be understood as being fulfilled in real historical events, either past or future, they're fulfilled however different idealist interpreters choose to understand them. This makes the idealist position a grab bag and has been the great problem of the idealist commentators. Each has come up with his or her own meaning for the symbols and visions. If these things are meant to be understood in a purely spiritual sense, what's the code for unlocking them? No idealist has come up with the answer to that. So their attempts to understand the book have been short-lived. The third or second, if you, it just depends on how you want to count them, is the preterist position. Preterist position is a very, very, very small group of people. Um, I'll get more into why I'll get more into why I don't hold this position. Nor do I think we, as a church, should. Um, it comes down to the dating of the Book of Revelation. But this view takes Revelation. It's very similar to the the historical position, except they hold to an early dating on the writing of Revelation, so in the 40, AD 40 or so. And so they present Revelation that everything has already occurred in Revelation. And they see the fulfillment of what's written in Revelation is happening back in AD 68 to 70, 
when Rome under Nero's authority destroyed Jerusalem and, and it, was, it, was, it was a bloodbath for the Jews and early Christians. And so they believed that all that happened during that window fulfilled what was written in Revelation. Then there's the futurist position. This is the position that I'll be teaching from. A dispensational, you don't even need to, like, if I didn't go to seminary, I wouldn't be even using that word. And because of my humility, I have friends that are dispensationalists. I always kind of joke around and say, I'm a decaf dispensationalist because, like, I don't want to get dogmatic about things that we're guessing on. Like, and, there, and so the futurist view sees the book of Revelation as it's described in verse 3, where it describes itself as a prophecy. It's future. And this, in large part, comes out of the dating. So, so we've, I say we, the position that I'm teaching from, I view Revelation literally, not literalistically. Uh, there's, there's use of allegory, and that's all, like, parts of speech. Like, you can use all sorts of different genre within a, a, a literal position or understanding of Scripture. So I believe that this letter was written for a time in the future. Much of what is talked about in Revelation, I believe, is yet to unfold. And so let's talk about the date of writing. I told you we had some heavy lifting today to give the framework. Most scholars and historians give it a dating of A.D. 95. That's 25 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. I'm not going to go into a lot of the other external sources. I'm going to quote one guy that I think is pretty sufficient in his, in, in his sourcing. His name was Irenaeus. Now, he was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John who wrote this book. So this guy, Irenaeus, is essentially a spiritual grandson of the Apostle John who wrote this book. And in this writing that we have of him, they're discussing the Antichrist and wanting to identify who the Antichrist is. And so in this long quote that he said, he's like, if we were to understand who the Antichrist was in our present day, certainly John would have told us in his, in his what did he, they didn't understand the book to be Revelation. He said, we would, have, we would have been told about it in the apocalyptic vision that he had. And what he wrote for that was not seen very long time since but almost in our day toward the end of Domitian's reign. So that's the key. Domitian was the Caesar following Nero. We know that he ended his reign in AD 96. And so with this dating, there's other sources, but to me it's like you have the, great, the, the grandson of the Apostle John, who, who was a disciple of the disciple of John. He says this vision came at the end of Domitian's reign. That's a pretty reliable source. And so that places it at AD 95. Um, it, it affects how you see Revelation. Um, <clears throat> and with Domitian, I want to give some context of the writing. So Domitian, he, he was ruthless. This was an evil, evil, evil man. Um, he made Nero, who destroyed Rome, seem like Disneyland compared to himself under Dominician, the, 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 this, the persecution of the Jews and Christians was widespread across the known world. It was horrific for them. Um, the, the closest way I could liken it is going back a couple years in our history and inserting our church in northern Iraq where ISIS had control. 
and try living your life as a Christian under an ISIS-controlled area. I don't think any of us would volunteer for that. It, life would be brutal. There'd be those of us that would be murdered horrifically for our faith, as we saw in the TV stations and stuff. Like this was, this was a horror that we can't even imagine in our in our soft, gentle Christianity in the safety of. Of, of American culture. Like, it's hard for us to even fathom the brutality that these saints were going through at the time of this writing. Um, <clears throat> so, Revelation offers them a counter reality than they were living. So, the reality that they were living is that they were being executed banished, abandoned. John, who writes this, was on exile on the island of Patmos, which don't think of this as like a, a, you know, a, an island resort in the Mediterranean. Think of this as Alcatraz, where he's in prison doing hard labor as a 95-year-old or 90-year-old man. Um, the, the believers were just being brutalized. And so this letter would have been received by them. It would have been like ointment to their soul. It offered this counter-reality that even though you're being beaten, uh, bruised, it shamed in every possible way, your God is on his throne in heaven, reigning and ruling, and a day is coming where judgment is going to be delivered. And every wrong that you've experienced, it will be reconciled. And so hold course, keep your eyes on him. Um, I gave inserts. I want to say in my notes, I want to like start it. So Revelation wasn't given to freak you out. <laughs> it, was, it was given to, to place our eyes on Christ, to recognize him for who he is, um, and to bring us assurance. So even though we're not going through the same trials and tribulations they're going through, we all have suffering, we all have trials, we all have afflictions that we're dealing with. If you're a human, you're going to die experience death. That, I mean, that's kind of like one of the worst things that we go through. And, and so the counter-reality is that Jesus conquered death and he is in his throne, on his throne, reigning and ruling. And he's not done. So I'm like, where do, where do I go with this insert? The first thing I'm going to start with is the outline. Big picture revelation. Revelation 1, verses 1 through 8, which we read. This is essentially the outline, or the, the introduction, excuse me. Then we move to Revelation 1, verse 9, to, to chapter 3, verse 22. Um, this is probably the most user-friendly part of Revelation. These are the letters to the seven churches. Um, these uh, first three chapters are, I think, dealing with present day, the local church, um, it would be like reading Philippians, Ephesians, any one of Colossians, the, the letters that were delivered to the church for circulation. Um, then we come to chapter 4. <laughs> and hang on to your seats because we're blasting off to outer space, to the highest high in the heavens. And so from chapter 4 to 18, we basically will go back and forth between a scene in heaven and, and a scene that will happen on earth. Um, I'll probably handle chapter 4 and 5 in one setting, and then I'm probably going to have to handle chapter 6, 8 through 18 in, in one setting. Um, actually, could you go to the next slide to kind of show us the back here? And, and uh, 
So you have this on the back of your, your thing. It sort of outlines. There's chapter 1, sort of the introduction, chapters 2 through 3, the seven churches. Um, 4 through 22, you have Christ as judge up in heaven. Then 6 through 18, you have uh, the scene on earth. What I would understand is the 70th week of Daniel is the tribulation, a seven-year period leading up to the to Christ's return. I think the best way to handle it, not committing to anything, I've outlined my preaching schedule like a hundred times over the last five weeks, trying to figure out how to happen, how to do it. Right now, what I think we're going to do is we're going to look at chapter six intently, and then we'll sort of fly over in one day chapters eight through 18. I'm going to bring in street tacos, and we're going we're gonna to label this Sunday as, I got a apocalyptic street taco Sunday. <laughs> Bring your favorite hot sauce. We're going to talk about the end times. We're just going to look at the, the overview, really get into it, and then we're going to have a great time and have some tacos, apocalyptic tacos. And so, <clears throat> and then we'll slow down for Christ's return, and, and hopefully we'll finish uh, right before Thanksgiving. Um, you can kind of see the, out, the outline there. Um, the reason I want to look at the big picture is because so many people have distorted this book. And you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And often when they're making it say whatever they want to say for whatever reasons, they're zooming in and they're ignoring the context. And so I think that the safeguard is to look at the big picture so that we see what's happening. I want to stay on the practical. I, don't want, to, I, I want to avoid speculation as much as I can. I think that the point of this book is to lead us to Christ so that we would worship him with all of our lives. With that, let's get into the text. So we start with the revelation of Jesus Christ. The very first thing to point out is that it's singular. Putting an S at the end of it is like nails on a chalkboard to me. It's not multiple revelations. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we go through this, we'll see that the Apostle John is, through all of these things, is given this vision. And in this one vision, this unfolding of things to come happens. Um, verse 19 of chapter 1 sort of is an outline. Uh, chapter 1, verse 19 says, Therefore write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. So you have the present tense what will come, and then the things after that. It's sort of an outline of revelation. This is Jesus' revelation uh, to the church. The word revelation in the Greek is a word that we get the word apocalypse from. However, the definition of the word apocalypse is very different from the meaning of the word that revelation meant in the Greek New Testament. Uh, this, this word means to unveil something, it means to uncover. It, makes, it means to make clear what is unclear. For those of you that are um, end times, prophecy, in, you enjoy it. Basically, you have the book of Daniel. There's a whole bunch of prophecy that was given in Daniel. And, and prophetic, prophetically, we know that 69 of the 70 weeks have ha- happened. And now this is like a part two that God shows himself to John at the end of his life, and he says, here's how the rest is going to unfold. Um, So they kind of go hand in hand. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, this unveiling of Jesus Christ, this this mystery which was concealed is now revealed. Um, He says, which God gave to him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. 
So the first I want to deal with is the word bondservant. This is doulos in the Greek. This is a, a, a slave that is there by choice. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that there were slaves that served. They were given the opportunity to be free, and they say, you know what? My master is really good to me. I love my master. I'm going to stay under his control, and I'm going to trust my life to him for the rest of my life. And they would, you know, there's a little pierce your ear, and then you'd give your rest of your life. So we're not going to pierce our ears today. But the idea is these are followers of Christ who have willingly subjected their life to Christ, who are living under his control. They're going through extreme pain and suffering, but they remained faithful to Christ. So which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Soon take place. There's a couple different ways you can understand this. I would deal with the word here, but then I'd have to like undo some stuff ladder. So in, in one sense, this word means that when the events begin to happen, it's going to happen very quickly. Um, there, there's also, we see from the lives of the apostles in the early church that there was an anticipation that they're waiting for Christ's return. Um, the, the idea that I think is, <clears throat> it's, it's the next item on the eschatological docket, meaning when we look at end times, we're not waiting for anything else for Christ to return. It could be another thousand years. It could be today. There's nothing else that we're waiting for than Christ's return. Must take place soon. Verse middle part here, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. The first word I'd like you to notice is communicated. The only reason we know anything about God is because God has chosen to reveal himself to us. It's not because we have sought God out. It's not because we have uh, done anything special to find him, that we've broken some code that our minds have enabled us to see him. We know about God and we know what God has because God has chosen to reveal himself to us. Generally speaking, I think through creation, specifically through the person of Christ and the word of God, we have actual revelation because God has chosen to communicate it with us. This bondservant John, this is the apostle John. This is during the gospels. John was the baby of all of the disciples, him and his brother James. Uh, This is the guy who wrote the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the revelation of Christ. So this is the person who's, who's communicating us uh, this book through. It's, it's the Apostle John. Then we read in verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and he, those who hear. Uh, within Revelation, there are seven, what they call seven Beatitudes. Um, so right here, it's, it's blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in them, for the time is near. And so we're told here there's a, there's a blessing. This is unlike any other book in the Bible. Um, the, the, this, this verse, in all honesty, has been a verse that is causing me some heartburn because, like, trying to, how do I fly over the thing when there's this promise? Like, blessed is he, singular, like there's an individual who reads, and then it goes to the plural, those who hear. And so this is the one that's made me take pause to like say, no, we're gonna, we'll, co- we'll cover this and we'll go through this letter because there's a promised blessing here. And there's, there's six others through the letter of uh, Revelation <clears throat> that we'll see. There's a special promise here 
Um, <clears throat> also, the caution here is in the beginning. If you guys haven't noticed, we have a little liturgy that we have here. We have, I, I get up here, I say a few announcements, make a joke about it's a little bit after Genesis. Then I pray, then I read the text, and then I pray again. The safest point is when I'm reading the text. <laughs> Beyond that, and I start commenting on it, we go into the danger zone of, of, of the teaching. But like the safest time is when the text is actually read. My aim is when I preach and I teach from the Word of God, my prayer is that when I'm done speaking, that the people who are hearing will have a clear picture of what the text is actually saying. My opinion doesn't matter. It's what the text says. And this is where the, the, my hands get a little tied. I have deep feelings and convictions about revelation from, from where I stand. But to my brothers that hold the more of the historical position and see the more allegory, I would totally disagree with them. But at the same time, I can't get dogmatic about it. And so with humility, I read and I present, but it's like, you know what? It hasn't happened yet. And I don't want to be a Pharisee who absolutely miss what God is doing in their midst because they were so wrapped around their understanding of the scriptures. And that's not to say that you can't have deep convictions and understanding what the word of God is saying. But blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in them for the time is near. So this letter is prophecy. Things are to unfold. If there, is thing, if there are things to heed in this, that means that there's application in this letter. And so I'm going to dig for the application. I'm going to dig for the things that matter to our lives in this present tense. I, I don't want to get wrapped around the axle trying to figure out the whole how everything is going to work. Um, if this letter was written to Gunner, and Gunner had the obligation of flipping the big switch. You know, I imagine like a big switch. Hey, Gunner, it's up to you to flip the eschatology. I can't even say the word. The end time switch. And don't mess it up. <laughs> you know, I remember once I was on an operation and we were, we were close to a country that we weren't supposed to go into. And our point man had gone up and over this vessel and I was a communicator, and I, I heard abort the emission. You guys are in waters that you're not supposed to be in. And I was like, can you say that word abort one more time? Because I don't want to be the guy that aborts this mission because that would be really bad. And so I was really focused on like, okay, I want to hear the word that you're saying to me before I give this command because if I give this command and it's not what I heard, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> I'm going to be in a lot of trouble with the admiral. This is a, no, you know, you guys are like not in international waters anymore. You need to abort the mission. It's like, okay, come on back, buddy. <laughs> like, we get off that boat. We're, we got to, it's time for breakfast. Let's go home. The reason I'm saying that, if it was up to me to flip the switch for when all this stuff is to happen, there would be a whole nother like, but it's not up to us. God's going to do what he's going to do. And I, I do for my theological position because I think this is prophecy, and I see the rapture of the church. I, I think from 1 Thessalonians 4 that God's going to take the church and some of the stuff is going to happen. And I say this with totally loose hands, and these things are going to unfold. And suddenly those that are left behind, that are living during this time, I think this book is going to become very critical, those chapters 4 through 18, trying to figure out and to sort through what's happening. I, I say that. 
I'm acknowledging my weakness in coming to this book. Um, but then there are many people from my position, like the Left Behind series was written from the guy that was the founder of my seminary. So, so, so to say that people in my like don't care, like we care, like we're probably like the position I hold, I personally would rather like point you guys to Christ so that your marriages would be kind of worked out and that your relationships would be good and how you raise your kids. Like that's where I want to go. But people have asked me so often for so many years, it's like, okay, we'll do this now and we'll get through it. Um, I do recommend the Life Left Behind books. They're very interesting if you want to read them and get some color. And Verse 4, moving on. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Can we go to the next slide? Okay. So you have a circle. The circle is sort of the zoomed-in map. To the top left, you see Rome. Uh, this is the island of Patmos right here, where John the Apostle is. And the letter is to the seven churches. I think this whole letter is to the seven churches. It was, it was like a circular letter. As we go through, um, so for the next eight weeks, so next week will be like the introduction. John's going to kind of explain what's going on. And then starting in chapter 2, he's going to write to the seven churches. So the church Ephesus. We'll do that in one week. And you can see that kind of it's a kind of clockwise situation that if you were to go in from Patmos, you would hit Ephesus. Then as you began to walk up, you would hit Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then you would return. So that so the letters over the next month or so, well, seven weeks, starting in two weeks, we're going to look at one of these letters at a time. And there's a little lesson to each of these churches dealing with what they were going through. Extremely practical. I, I was tempted to to just do like let's look at these seven churches, um, but verse three kept getting in the way. Blessed is he who who reads and those that hear, so that I'm like, okay, we'll just kind of cover all of Revelation. Um, <clears throat> so John is ri- being used by God to write this letter to these churches that was a circular letter. I believe that, that these seven letters are still practical. We're still in the era of, uh, or the dispensation of the church, and these letters are extremely practical. I think that we can pull lessons from them, um, it, it'll be great. We get to the next part of verse 4. Uh, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, our faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. The first thing I want to point out is um, I'm not, I'm not going to get lost in the weeds here. There's a lot here. There's like seven angels. We could speculate. I'm not going to do that. Seven is clearly like an important number, this number of perfection throughout Revelation. It's mentioned over and over again. The, the, the thrust of this is the supremacy of Jesus over all things. He is the God Almighty. There is no one beside him. This last phrase, and the ruler of the kings of the earth Dominician who sat on his throne, he required people to worship him as God. 
all of the Caesar city, if you think back to Jesus with the coin, you know, render unto Caesar the things that are of Caesar, on that coin it says that Caesar's God. And he says, he's not God, give it back to him. Give your lives to God because the image of God is on us as humans. And so give your lives to God, but that's a different teaching. And so here we see that Jesus is Lord over all, that he is the sustainer and creator of everything, that he is on his throne, he is actively reigning and ruling and being worshipped. It's this majestic scene in heaven. And from this majestic scene in heaven, he says, grace to you and peace. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve, pouring out his favor upon your life, peace with God, peace from God, only available to you through him. He continues and he says, to him who loves us and released us, some of the older translations, if you're in the King James, it'll say washed us. That word washed is not a right word. Um, in the Greek, there was one little letter that, that there was a manuscript that, that, that if you read it, it could be, there's one letter difference between washed and released. But the, the, the evidence is overwhelming that the word here is, is released. And I think it, it, the context here paints a powerful picture. Um, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the reason that this is, if you're in your sin, if you haven't received Christ as your Savior, the Bible tells us that God's wrath is waiting for you. Um, There's a consequence for our sins. It separates us from God. But the same God who judges us is the same God that loves us so much that he would send his only son to live a perfect life for us and that he would be offered on the cross for our sake. And we're saying that he loves us so much and he released us from our sins by his blood. Powerful. This is 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, for you were bought for a price. Uh, I think, it, what does it say? Honor or glorify God with your bodies. Like you've been bought with a price. So use your bodies, your life, everything for his glory. It didn't come cheaply. It might be a free gift, but it wasn't cheap. God gave all so that we might have life in him. And the greatest question of all of this book, this book is to believers. And have you Receive Christ as your Savior. It's a gift. God is going after you. He's pursuing you. He's chasing after you. You might have been harmed by religion. You might have been harmed by, by your parents here in the story of Daniel. And this, like, these things that happen to us in this life because sin exists are like overwhelming. But we have a sovereign God that is above and greater than all of these things. Doesn't matter if you're living under Domitian and, and being persecuted and fellow brothers and sisters and family members are being put to death. We're told that there's a God who's reigning and ruling in heaven and every injustice will be brought to justice. And you have sin, I have sin, and our sin brings death. Our sin requires God's holiness to bring justice to us. But he says, come on guys, I love you. I sent my son. I made a way for you to get right with me, to receive grace, to receive peace from me. But I'm not going to force it on you. You can respond. I believe it's totally your choice. 
And I believe that God's working all of the angles to, to find that you, you know, to push you to that sweet spot so that you might grope him as Acts 17, 26, and 27 speaks of. And so from the very beginning, the picture of, us, of Jesus, the picture points us to the gospel of this God who loves us, who has released us from our sins. And that's the premise of this book. It's, not, it's Christ being exalted that we would keep our eyes on him and recognize what he's done for us. And as we look at this world and you look at the tragedies, all you've got to do is read the paper. It's horrible. Say, there's a God who loves you. There's a God that's in control. There's a God that is greater than whatever you're going through. Keep your eyes on him and he will get you through it. Maybe not in this life, but certainly the next one. He died so that death would no longer sting. He says, the priesthood of the believers. I don't want to share too much, but I was laughing. Where's Joel? He had a big Hawaiian shirt on. I don't know. Was Joel anywhere nearby? There he is, hiding back there. So we were at a wedding. Dina Martinez got married last night, and it was like loud, and Joel was like killing me. He's talking to me. The very end, underneath the speaker, I can like hear about one every three words. But he was talking about this friend that's like really opposed to our church because the pastor doesn't wear a collar. Like, man, I can't even imagine preaching like that. We don't have stained glass. Um, and like the idea, uh, he's like, yeah, no education. I'm like, Joel, what does she mean, no education? I'm like, I got like 10 years of theological education. Like, what? like uh, come on, give me at least, I don't wear a collar, but I went to school. Like, I, like uh, give, me, give me a little bit, you know, throw me a bone. And, and there's like religion tells us that the priesthood, that there's this priest, this mediator, this, this guy that wears a white collar, and if you want access to God, you've got to come to him. And then they walk into our church, and there's some guy that says, dude, from the pulpit. And he's like just teaching about the Bible. And there's not a whole lot of stuff. The issue that I have is the Bible talks about every person that's in Christ has made, become a priest. That's what it says. That's scary, isn't it? It's made us to be a kingdom priest. That, that we now have responsibility as followers of Christ as this priestly duty of worship. Beautiful. Before we were kept back, but on the cross the veil was torn in two and we've been entered in. We were allowed to enter in. The whole book of Hebrews. This is to, be the, to him be the glory and the dominion forever. Amen. It's beautiful. And in verse 7, he says, Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes on earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. So I believe that this is, uh, look at my notes, I think it's Daniel 7.14, or maybe it's 9. Uh, what? 9, he's saying 9. I'll take his word. You can look at your footnotes. He's quoting from Daniel. But he's also kind of quoting, if you were to go back to Acts chapter 1, verses 10, you know, Jesus is just ascended into heaven and all the apostles are standing there going, well, that was interesting. <laughs> like, what do we do now? And all of a sudden, the two angels appear, or however many angels appear. They say, hey, what are you guys doing? What are you looking at? <laughs> uh, and Jesus just kind of went up into the clouds. And they say, go and wait for him. For he's going to return just in the same manner. There's this picture that he's going to appear in the same way, which is mind-boggling to me. Just as flight was mind-boggling to Mr. Wright back in 1870. 
just because it's hard for me to imagine that Jesus would appear in a way that the whole world would see those that pierced him, nobody's going to miss it. Doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. And when I think about this Jesus that will return again like this and we're told to anticipate him, it should affect how I live. It should affect my relationship with my wife. It should affect my relationship with my children. It should affect my relationship with all of you because I'm going to give an account for every thought, every action, everything that I've done before this great God who loved me, who died on the cross for me, who paid the price of something that was deserved me, this wrath. But instead, he stood in my place. And now, in his eyes, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed, credited to my account, that I stand before him clean, washed, pure. Makes no sense to me. And so out of this grace, it changes everything for me, and I hope it changes everything for you. Verse 8 I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end, the A to Z, not Amazon, which there's a little, (laughs) times have changed. The Alpha and the Omega in the Greek, it's the beginning and the end, says the Lord God, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. I see see this as, as God's like seal of approval on this letter that's being transmitted These are the words of God to us. He used John to pen them. And if you go through Revelation and you have one of the red-lettered Bibles, you're going to see a lot of Revelations in red because it's the words of Christ. And this book can be terrifying. But I want to quote Corey Ten Boom. She said, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And I think that that's the purpose of this letter One of the commentators, as I close here, he wrote about an experience he had. Several years ago, a colleague told me about an interesting experience he had on the mission field when ministering to an underground and persecuted church in a totalitarian country. Out of curiosity, he asked, what are your favorite books in the Bible? To his surprise, the answer was Daniel and Revelation. When asked why, to his surprise, when he asked why, they said, because they teach us in the end our God wins. Those faithful brothers and sisters in Christ are right. Revelation in particular teaches us that Jesus is the ruler of kings of the earth and that the glory and dominion are God's forever. He is the one who is, who was, and who is coming, the Almighty. This is a God who is victorious. This is a God you can trust. This is a God who will do what he promises. This is what we learn when God speaks from heaven. So my question to you is, have you experienced this almighty Jesus? The gospel is really simple. The gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, tells us that Jesus stepped out of heaven. He became man. He lived a perfect life. And according to prophecy, He went to the cross not because of anything that he had done that was wrong. He went to the cross for our sins. And that the wrath of God was poured out onto him. And it was done on our behalf. And that he was buried. And then three days later, he rose from the grave and he conquered death. And we're told that when we 
hear the gospel and recognize that Jesus did this for us and we receive it. We're told that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's simple. It's believing, trusting. Not just merely acknowledging, but saying, Lord, Lord, I believe and I'm giving my life to you. Help me to live my life in a way that's pleasing to you. And he gives you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will lead and guide you. Now, I don't think that we've experienced a sort of suffering in the United States that was going on during the time of revelation, the, the time of writing. But we don't need to look too hard to, like, to find sorrow in our lives. Like, listen to a country song. Girlfriend broke up with you. Transmission fell out of the car. <laughs> flat tire. Like, I mean, but in seriousness, like, we're all in the process, like, I don't know at what age you begin the downhill decline, like maybe 21, 22. Like, at some point, you start, like, you're moving to death. You're not growing anymore. Like, we, we, we all have a limited time on this earth. We all will face death and tragedy and suffering and and evil, I mean, there's just evil. In Escondido, like, there's a horrible crime this week of two murder, and it's horrific. The evil that's out there. And when we come to the book of Revelation, we're told that this evil isn't unchecked. That there's a God that's in control, on his throne. Somehow he's patient with us. Because Peter tells us that he longs for every person to come to salvation. And so he's waiting for people to respond. So my prayer is that we would not only respond to him, but that we would live for him. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this life that you've given us. Father, there's a whole lot that we don't know about the things that are to come, about the things that are happening around us. Father, I pray that as we work through this book that our picture of you would be expanded, that we would get a glimpse of your majesty, that we would get a glimpse of your sovereignty, that we know that no sin is left unchecked in your eyes. And so, Father, we fall down before your throne and we worship you, we give you thanks We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came, that he suffered, and he died on our behalf. Father, we ask that you would help us to live our lives in a way that's worshipful, honoring, giving you all the glory. Um, We are grateful, Lord, for this day and this relationship that we have with you through Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.